you you actually do this initial and I was kind of mystified at the time as to exactly what a left or right initial was and yeah. and, and thankfully I got it right and I didn't get fronted yeah. up but it, 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 after after did you just want to explain it real quick for our listeners oh I'm still mystified by it. <laughs> yeah, go still, Google yeah. it is but, you can go Google but I'll tell you what it's a lot of fun Parky here. Today the umbilical cord is cut and Luke commands his Piper Tomahawk beyond the comfy but rather closeted skies of his home aerodrome. No more just taking off circling and then landing back at the aerodrome for Luke. Today it's solo out into the blue and green yonder of the area where runways are scarce, instructors are out of sight and it's just Luke, his aeroplane and the big blue Aussie sky. We chat with Luke about his experiences and at the same time Sam and I talk about our first area command experiences 22 and 44 years ago. Plus in our retro salute we share an epic first area command, not in the blue yonder but the black yonder of outer space. This salutes in honour of the recent passing of John Glenn, NASA's first man to orbit the Earth. We wish I could have mic'd him up, brought him in for a coffee and chatted about his legendary area command, but alas that was beyond the humble budget of our little podcast, so we'll just make do with reminiscing. Welcome to the Cancel Sarwat Podcast. So what I want to do is just read an excerpt here from an article by Mark and Scott Kelly that appeared in the Washington Post, and I'll link to that in the podcast notes. So I'll just read a little bit of this, and then we'll launch into our own first area command experiences. So this is uh, Mark and Scott Kelly writing, and they were actually mentored by John Glenn, and this is what they wrote. Two years before we were born and three decades before we each had the chance to leave our planet in a spaceship, our parents and 100 million other people heard the news. A 40-year-old Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel named John Glenn had become the the first American to orbit the Earth. To this day, Glenn's journey remains as awe-inspiring as it was audacious. It was an act of patriotism and heroism in a life full of them. The word hero gets thrown around a lot, but John Glenn defined it. Consider that Glenn even agreed to take the elevator to the top of the Atlas rocket. So I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but those Atlas rockets, the first serials, you know, the old adage, don't fly the A model of anything. Well, yes. the A model of the Atlas rockets tended to blow up a lot. <laughs> so, so as a NASA astronaut, Glenn had seen those Atlas rockets fail in unmanned tests over and over in massive catastrophic explosions. And the team at NASA were unsure it could bring him home safely without his capsule disintegrating during re-entry. So I don't know about you, Luke, but if someone said to you, we're not even sure whether this tomahawk can fly, but just give it a go anyway. Give it a shot. Yeah. Um, that was not exactly a confidence booster. He knew the risks and he flew anyway, and as expected, the flight was far from a cakewalk. Once in orbit, the tiny capsule faced climate issues. Actually, we've experienced just a little bit of that today in our stuffy little recording studio, LR study. Uh, during the flight, NASA flight controllers discovered that the capsule's automated steering system was using up too much hydrogen peroxide, a component essential to controlling the capsule's orientation and attitude during re-entry. Glenn was faced with a choice no astronaut wanted to make. Astronauts spend hours in a flight simulator to prepare for these types of bad scenarios, but the technology then wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today. 
With great intuition and skill, Glenn manually took control of the capsule to conserve power and successfully maneuvered Friendship 7 through low Earth orbit against the blackness of space. He circled our planet three times. Four hours and 56 minutes after liftoff, Friendship 7 safely touched down in the Atlantic Ocean and was hoisted aboard the USS NOAA, where Glenn stated it was very hot in there. After retiring from NASA and the military, he continued to, to distinguish himself in public service. He represented his home state of Ohio. He was a champion of nuclear non-proliferation, writing legislation that helped slow the spread of nuclear weapons. And then I'll just read this last little bit here, which I think is kind of relevant to our own noble pursuit of the spirit of flight. After all, it was the idealism and courage of the early Mercury pioneers, such as Glenn, that helped pave the way for Gemini, Polo, Skylab, the Space Shuttle Program, the Hubble Space Telescope, the Mars Rovers, and the International Space Station. For a couple of young astronauts like us, showing up to work next to John Glenn was like a rookie playing baseball against Babe Ruth but they go on to talk about how gracious, humble, and a lot of fun that he was. And I think that ties back to our earlier episodes as well about the attitude, about the attitude of pilots, the professional attitude, the professional value of pilots in particular, and we are pursuing that spirit of flight. And I just found it interesting that a guy like that who had every reason to probably be proud and brash was actually well known for being a humble guy. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought it was pretty cool the, uh, the whole area command motif that we're talking about today. Uh, but did you guys have any comments on that before we launch into finding out how Luke went on his area command and all the adventures that he's had out on the Darling Downs? I just like the picture of him, like, uh, going up the elevator into the into the rocket. Uh, mm. Like, the, as you said, the Model A rocket, the one that's mm. never really kind of flown before, and I think the article said that he'd seen multiple rockets explode, like unmanned mm. ones beforehand. You know, I just can I can only imagine the kind of feeling of him just... <laughs> you, yeah. you, it's almost like the movies. You see, like, all the lights going through the cracks in the in the lift and mm. like each one's going past and he's just closer and closer yeah. to the top I'm about to get in this thing and yeah and then to be strapped in it too it's not like Tomahawk or aircraft that we've flown where you just secure that canopy and you know yeah. with a few quick release bolts or whatever you can quickly get out they, they were like literally bolted in you know very difficult to get out if something did happen in the event of a fire as well so very brave what, what were you thinking well, I was thinking of uh, risk management wasn't <laughs> in those days and army embraced risk management in the early 90s and probably just as well if Glenn did this beforehand otherwise we would never have got to space well it's interesting is like on the pioneering edge of something that there's this really high risk, but there's a really high return. And so they, they get their brightest together. You know, Apollo 13, as an example, in the movie, I think they represent that. Well, you, you get your best and your brightest together. And even though there's this incredible danger and risk, you've got the best and brightest thinking about it. And it's just that attitude again of like, if we could just tap into that attitude, a bit like we talked about the Wright brothers in earlier podcasts where no risk management, no bureaucracy to keep them safe. They're thinking literally on their feet, well, what's going to happen next? And even if we could just tap into a little bit of that, that's going to be a, a special thing. So with that in mind, we might uh, jump into hearing about Luke's uh, adventures out on the Darling Down. So you went First area solo. It, what's the prep? Yeah. Do you have to have a little bit of prep for that? Like the, you have to do a, 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 an exam or something? Yeah, we had to do pre-area solo exam. It's quite simple. It's basically making sure that you know how to enter a pattern, what radio calls to make, uh, all that kind of stuff. Because okay. prior to that, you've also done a pre-solo test, which covers yeah. all of the yeah. you know, practical flying. And so it's just making sure that you knew the 
boundaries of the training area. It's a pretty good one, especially with Oki so close. Don't want to be flying into that restricted airspace. That would not be very good. Yeah. First no, time. I'm sure air traffic control there would be very thankful for yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, look, it was really good. I was pretty excited about it. Uh, and basically what you do is, or what we did, is we started off and I went out with an instructor who took me out to the training area and just pretty much said, right, you're going to fly the airplane the whole time. I'm not really going to say anything. Just take me out to the training area. I'll tell you to do some steep turns and practice force landings. Mm -hmm. And we did one of each of those until it all, he must've been happy with those because he obviously wouldn't have let me go solo if he wasn't happy with how I was doing them. And we came back, landed and he jumped out. And then I pretty much just went out to the training area for an hour, practice some steep turns, which is pretty good and came back in. Then an hour later, went back out again and did some practice force landings, which was pretty awesome. I felt pretty confident about it. Worst case scenario, we have an engine failure. I'm literally flying over a bazillion paddocks because there's yeah. there's not much other than paddocks south of Toowoomba. So yeah, and it's probably important for some listeners who may not be aware in aviation. It's not like a car. If you have an engine fake, you can just pull over to the side of the road and wait for RSEQ or whatever. Yeah. You're obviously going down whether you like it or not. And so obviously you were trained and prepared yeah. for that. They pulled a few practice uh, force landings on you. Yeah, we'd done quite a few, to be honest, uh, mm. in the over multiple lessons um, mm. out in the training area beforehand. So I felt I felt pretty confident that I'd at least be able to line it up. Obviously, when you're training, we don't really go below 500 feet in any of the kind of paddocks um, that are outside of the built-up area. And there's one paddock that we've got a, an arrangement that we can go down to 50 feet or oh, it's like right. 100 feet or something like that so that's about as close as I got to doing a real yeah. uh, practice force landing and mm -hmm. I managed to do it fairly well I think even in all the training ones I may have only stuffed up two out of uh, maybe 15 so I like those odds for <laughs> being able to do it again by myself that's not too bad but yeah like it was awesome fun and I just remember as I was kind of taking off so we must have been on 2-9 because we did a left turn out to head down to the I say we it was just me it's a yeah, force yeah, habit saying we yeah, yeah. yeah me, me and friend. mysterious other guy did you have your teddy there or something uh, like comfort. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> but you it was can, good you can own up here on the way out I did the whole kind of like oh this is really really fun I'm leaving the circuit area the tethering rope's getting a little little bit longer yeah. uh, wave the wings a little bit on the way out because again <laughs> no one's gonna stop me <laughs> um, and it was pretty cool and I know that my instructor listens to this so I gotta be pretty careful with what nah one of the things so I do have a mate that has a mm. decent sized property mm -hmm. that is in the training area uh, and I knew that he was out at his property uh, so one of the things I did do is I flew over his property and did a practice force landing into his field so I obviously pulled up 500 feet above the ground but that was pretty cool he knew that I was coming because uh, I knew that I was going to go and do my area solo uh, he didn't tell me until afterwards they were mm. all out at his property shooting so I'm glad they didn't try to use yeah. me as target practice yeah, <laughs> yeah no it was pretty oh, good right. it was awesome it was yeah it was really exciting and all went well no no dramas and landed and felt like it was a pretty good accomplishment. Oh, wow. So, 2016, 44 years ago, Sam's got his logbook yeah. out there. With yeah, it actually, I looked at it, it was actually 42 because I'd actually yeah. started two years before. Oh, yeah. I only went to solo, so I didn't actually get out in the area. So, it was on the 17th of October, 1974, and Wingeal 420 out of Point Cook to go around the plunder around the Bellarine Peninsula. The weather was reasonably fine. Authorised solo to do series 1 to 10, 12, 13, 15, 17 and 18 for one and a half hours and I've got very little recollection of exactly what that was but I do know that it included <laughs> um, stalling and uh, steep turns and of all things spin oh, so yeah, wow. we used to the i had to go out to a, somewhere near geelong and climb to nine thousand to do a spin mm. to the left and the spin to the right and and i did all this and anybody who's flying a windy or knows that one, if, in one direction it'll, it 
can potentially go unstable and you've got to count the number of turns you've got and make sure that the speed is not increasing and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, but, but one thing that, that really struck me at the time, uh, first of when I was out there, was was that they, the military system, we're talking about mm. uh, risk management, they actually teach you to do these manoeuvres and then they trust you yeah. to go out and, and do it. And because, I mean, that's a big single engine radial engine to be up there by yourself spinning it, not too many hours, mm. only you know, a couple of hours after you've gone solo. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Well, that's interesting too because... I think spins have become really contentious because they've mm. lost more aircraft, particularly in the civil world, mm. practicing spins mm. and spin recoveries than actually having to deal with a real yeah. spin. But yeah. um, but yeah, by the time we got to Tamworth, we were shown a spin, but we didn't do it on our solo. Mm. But we did do loops, and I don't think we did barrel rolls, but we definitely did loops and stuff. So, mm. and again, that's quite you know to be I don't know how many hours we would have had probably twenty five thirty. Mm going out and doing loops in a CT4. So mm. I'm actually going to share in a minute but about a squirrel, but you mm. can't go. <laughs> I'm never yeah, going to be able to do it. No, 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 no loops in a squirrel, no, yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of thinking, gee, I wonder if my instructor realises that I don't feel all that secure doing this sort of stuff and I'd probably slack off doing my checks and have a good time and maybe not be within plus yeah. or minus... 100 feet or something, but in, in some ways it kind of forced me to yeah, do the right thing, I guess. Uh, which well, your life's in your own hands, isn't it? So yeah, very much so. You live with those consequences. And, and the other thing that was quite different, because I had done a little bit of civvy flying, was um, in the military they rejoin in the, in the fixed wing via a left or a right initial. So you don't join crosswind and you, you actually do this initial. And I was kind of mystified at the time as to exactly what a left or right initial was. And, yeah. and, and thankfully I got it right and uh, I didn't get fronted yeah. up, but... It, 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 after after a while. Did you just want to explain it real quick for our listeners? Oh, I'm still mystified. By it. <laughs> yeah, go Google yeah. it. Is you but, can go Google. But I'll tell you what, it's a lot of fun. You, you, you get this, you get this aircraft about two thousand feet above what it should be in the circuit, and you shove the nose down. You get this thing up as fast as you possibly can mm. for your crosswind turn, and then you hack it into the the hardest possible number of G's to go through ninety degrees and bleed off. <laughs> bleed off speed till you get onto downwind and it, it is just a real hoot uh, there, there should be more of that though. you should write your own Wikipedia article that'd be <laughs> yes, yeah, it really <laughs> is good fun I mean, it comes to you naturally after a while but initially when you've got to, mm-hmm. got to come in and do it all by yourself and you're, you're not you haven't got somebody saying to you you're sure that's what you want to do blogs and yeah it's good fun yeah. oh that's awesome well my I was going to share my CT4 one but you guys done some fixed wing one and my, my area command was a mutual in helicopters with a friend of mine. So they would send you out in pairs when we were down in Canberra at what was the Australian Defence Force Helicopter School. So they'd send you out on a nav and we took off in a squirrel, which is an AS350. And as we took off, we realised we left the pitot cover on. So that was the start of our <laughs> mutual. <laughs> so there was two problems. One is how to land again and get the pitot cover off without the instructors noticing. But thankfully, it wasn't a circuit solo, so no one was outside. So we quickly got, you know, ATC permission because it was in Canberra's airspace and everything. Came back around. Thankfully, they taught us attitude flying, so it didn't matter that we didn't have any airspeed or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Came back around, landed, quickly ran out, pulled the pitot cover off and then jumped back in. And uh, off we went, and then we—I think we were flying up towards, you know, Goulburn kind of way—and promptly got lost. So we had no idea, <laughs> absolutely no idea where we were. So we also did a low-level pass of a sign that we could see <laughs> after doing a thorough recce for wires and so forth of a sign that uh, we could see on the road. And so we came down nice and low, and then we could see this road junction. I think it was still like, is it Cannon Winder or something? I don't know. One of those places anyway. It was, oh, yeah, now we just follow this road. Oh, yeah, now we know where we are. (laughs) (laughs) So that 
was my first area solo. But again, it was like go out, make a few mistakes, live with the consequences of them in a sense, and it just it kind of ups the ante in terms of okay, there is no one there to get me out of this. I'm here now, out by myself. There's nothing really the instructor can do for you once you're out there. Um, we don't have any comms. They can't even you know be a friendly kind of phone a friend kind of help me out. But I think it really develops your aviation character, and you begin to realise hey, these decisions that I make, the things that I've learnt about fuel management and navigation and all those other things, emergency training that mm. you were talking about. Luke, all those things I actually really do need now. And, and But even though we got lost and had that little mishap, we really enjoyed it and we felt quite comfortable and uh, had a great time, brought the machine back safely. So yeah. that was my first area command. If you've got a plastic pedo cover, you can always turn the pedo head on. <laughs> I've heard of that one before. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that one. Because they do get really hot, those men. I mean, yeah. I don't know, that was a squirrel, who knows? Maybe the whole... No, I better not say anything about it. <laughs> so anyway, so Sam, in 44 years of flying, you've commanded a lot of aircraft and a lot of area sorties. Mm. What I'd like to do now is just ask you, what are the top three things you'd like Luke and I guess some of our listeners to know from your experience? Well, well, I, I well, thank you for giving me a bit of a heads up on this. I actually did some research and uh, I found that the three points that I came up with actually kind of gel together in a way which and I'll explain that to you now the first one first point I came up with was am I prepared for this particular trip I'm being very general there yeah a trip a sortie whatever am I prepared for it if I planned for it in other words mm. if I made if I looked at the weather have I then uh, worked out a plan of how to get from point A, B, C, D. Mm. Have I got the appropriate maps and the authority to do it? Have I looked at the fuel? Mm. Am I refueling? Am I technically allowed to to land this aircraft on that particular piece of dirt or runway? These sort of things. Have, have I done all this? Then I think the second one is the weather. Does the weather allow me to do or probably do the job? If I'm in doubt, have I got a backup plan or two or three? And thirdly, if you're really doubtful whether the weather's going to allow you to do it either don't go or talk to somebody else who's probably got more more experience put your hand up and say i'm mm. with my experience I, i'm not confident with this weather what do you suggest you can either talk you into it get somebody else who or say no we won't do it we, we don't have to do this mm. we won't do it so the third point is fuel uh, weather and fuel are the two things that are going to bite you right in the ass if you're outside of a, of a big organization you really want like you do now you, do, you want to do your gross check of how much fuel have i got on board so when i start that aircraft how long is that engine going to keep going mm. until such time as it runs out of that's you, a gross error check so, so do you do that do you do like a burnout time in your head of going, um, okay, at this time i will not have any fuel left like, yeah well not necessarily a burnout time but i know that the tomahawk uses 22 liters an hour yep. yeah. so before i if i'm going on an hour yep. flight i go mm. well i need at least 22 liters and just to be safe i usually mm. end up with um 35 liters in each tank yeah. so yeah so the time's a really good one actually they taught me this in fort rucker um because we didn't harp on it too much mm. in australia but they would actually get you to calculate a burnout time so you do your fuel flow make sure that you're actually using as, as you climb mm. as you yeah, get yeah. to cruise uh, and then you would go, okay, based on this fuel flow, at time 1642, yep. um, I'll burn out. Yep. So what it does is it cements in your head that it's not some kind of, I guess, more arbitrary or amount of fuel back there. It's yeah, like, yeah, at yeah. this time is my hard shoulder. Yeah, and good. funnily enough, then it's really easy as well to tell them what your SAR time is, if yeah. you're going to hold a SAR time and do it yeah. over the radio. Yep. Um, yeah, that was a yeah. really important thing. And it's just time and time again, you see even yeah. experienced guys for some mm. reason forget yeah. and run out of fuel there's yeah. so many accounts yeah. out there so you can see that that ties in with your weather and to whether 
you know, you've got to give it, have your, your backup plan, and that goes in with it. Those three things all tie in, they mm. dovetail in together. You keep on coming back towards yeah. each other. How does that fit with you, Luke? Any comments or yeah, questions? Yeah, that's good. Like, I'm really looking, I think a lot of that stuff will probably come more into play when I start doing my navs. Because um, yeah. at the moment, yeah, the, the most I ever really need to do um, is just make sure if I'm going out for an hour that I, I usually just even just round it up and mm. say I need at least 44 hours of, oh, sorry, 44 litres of fuel. And I just know that I can fly for two hours. I mean, that's probably about all I do. But I really like that idea of you know, the engine's going to stop at this time. You can um, thank the US Army for yeah, that. And the US thanks Army. Thanks for yeah, seeing right for bringing it out. Yeah, yeah, no, that was really, really good. But, um, and also to realise, you know, what you're doing on an area command, like we said all along, you're setting those foundational habits mm. and rhythms of flight that will, yeah, stand you in good stead when you're doing yeah. an ab. And obviously later on, and we'll talk about this for a couple of questions later on about what we've been most concerned about on an area sortie, but normally you're doing an area sortie for a reason. You mm. As it will lead into a nav, you're out on a mission or a job, you're taking people from point A to point B or you're going to get someone or whatever. So, But that was really good. Mine were very similar, actually. I definitely talk about fuel because even if things are turning really bad with weather or you've got lost, if you've got fuel, you've got options. Mm. And I think that's that brings back to that old aviation axiom. The three most useless things in aviation, do you remember what they are? Uh, runway behind you, uh, yeah. fuel you don't have. Fuel on the ground. Fuel, fuel on the ground and what altitude you don't have. Uh, altitude yeah. of air above you or something like that, isn't There's it? There's no navigators here, but the third one was ours in a navigator's logbook. But anyway, no, okay. or, <laughs> or a load master, but we shouldn't <laughs> say that. <laughs> so, but the point with fuel is that if you've got fuel, you've got options you've got fuel you can go places if you've got fuel mm. you can make an assessment do an alternate plan that obviously comes out to the planning beforehand so that's my number one and then number two would be what i call plan b which ties into sam's prep because if you always have a plan b then even when it's starting to turn really ugly and it's and you're starting to get very concerned or anxious about a certain situation if you know you've got an out mm. having an out having a plan b then you're going to feel a lot better about things. And again, that will probably come in the preparation beforehand if you've thought about what plan B is and all the what ifs that we've talked about many times before on the podcast about, mm. well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And just mind mapping and wargaming that in your own mind is really important. And then the final one, as Sam was saying, is just the weather, but just that respect for the weather. And oftentimes what tends to happen is you'll fly in sky clear or relatively good weather and you think, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. And then all of a sudden it just it can just do the most weird things. And I remember even just recently, you know, cruising along and, you know, I thought I'd seen it all and it was at night and we're in the 412 heading down to Gundawindi and there was a thunderstorm. It was well clear. I'd flown at that distance around thunderstorms many times before, probably a good, you know, 20 miles away. Uh, but I didn't have the night vision goggles on, so I couldn't actually see. And then next thing, it was like this almighty kick up the backside of the 412. Like it literally felt like a great big hand had lifted the aircraft. And when you get negative G and you're not expecting it, it's not a very nice feeling. And before we could do anything, the whole you know automatic flight control system had kicked offline and the machine had basically been pushed up 500 feet and 1,000 feet, mm-hmm. caught in this massive updraft. And so anyway, Manic like, obviously took over, decoupled everything, and then started just... On the, on the clocks, you know, on the attitude indicator, just trying to hold an attitude because the airspeed's doing these ones and, you know, we're paramedics not very happy in the back and so forth. And we sort of turned away from this storm over there, which was way, way away, and then finally got into clear air. And I still don't really know. I rang up the Met man, go, what was the go, you know? And they didn't even really know. They said the best they could come up with was that there was a bit of wing shear coming out of the storm. It was going a bit further than what they thought, or there was another storm starting to form. But we, there were stars above us. So, But again, just that kind of having that healthy respect 
for the weather. So yeah, so I think we probably summed that up well. It's like fuel, planning, and weather, definitely having a plan B. And I just like to say on fuel as well, a, a wise man once told me that when you're out in the area, there should only really ever be two speeds, maybe three if you're a helicopter, because one's hover. But <laughs> you know, you should either be flying at endurance speed or rain speed. Mm-hmm. Because again, second most useless thing on the ground, the second most useless thing in aviation, fuel on the ground. Well, if you're burning fuel for no good reason, if you're not at range or endurance, why are we doing that? You know, mm. you never know when you might need that bit of fuel for something unexpected. And not even necessarily a weather diversion, but just someone saying, hey, can you go this extra bit to go and get, you know, blogs from point A. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're my three. So just to finish off with then, uh, Sam, what have you been most concerned about on an area sortie in your well, decades of flying? What will... Well, I'll, well, I'll also tie this in with what the general theme we've been going mm. was, um, my first solo VFR nav was in a Kyra, a Blake Jet Ranger. There were two students on this particular course. The uh, route that we had to do the nav was Oki, Kingaroy, Maruchidor, Kilcoy, Oki. Was that so, fuel at Maruchidor? Uh, no, we kept on going. Oh, hang on, yeah, I think it was refuel, uh, refuel at Maruchidor. Yeah. Coffee? Uh, no, 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 no. Didn't do <laughs> Come on. Uh, no, didn't do that. <laughs> that, was, that was before the day they had anything at Maruchidor. Oh, right. Uh, the, anyway, the, the cloud when we took off from Oki was about roughly... Four, four octaves and um, about two and a half thousand to four thousand and my the preceding uh, student who was uh, Trevor Jones actually he decided he was going to go go low and do scud running yeah okay. and I, I elected to go high above the cloud and so VFR on top I was VFR on top yeah and just to jump in there so between Kingaroy for people who may not know mm. and Maruchidor is the great dividing range mm. so you can get sort of a bit more unpredictable weather yeah. turbulence and so forth yeah so uh, talking to uh, Trevor when I got back he, he, did, he had some real fun doing some scud running down down low and I had uh, the easy job flying above but as we the further we got east the less and less uh, visibility we had and I was getting concerned that we weren't weren't going mm. to be able to see my turning points and whatever but as it turned out they miraculously appeared below me but I did uh, it could have could have turned to worms very smartly mm. and uh, of course we weren't instrument rated so yes and that's a case too where if you get nervous when you don't have a plan b because you know mm. you're heading over the cloud if you can't get down you can't and you don't yeah. have enough fuel yeah. that's when you start yeah. feeling that kind of tightening yeah. in the chest you know so in that, in that particular case, I didn't have a plan B. I was just lucky. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that's going to happen to me at some point. Yeah. 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 It'll happen. Yeah. And that's, again, that's where I guess, I guess I'd also like to say the grace of God is a good thing because I think we've all been in those situations where we have probably in our own strength or whatever uh we've gone out flying planned it all and stuff or maybe at times you do get a bit kind of cocky and then if it isn't for the grace of god you could end up being in a situation where you couldn't get down and you run out of fuel you know we've got mates that that's happened to so anyway i'm thankful thankful um i actually got called out when i was with the new south wales police a light aircraft to the northwest of sydney and mm. got caught above cloud and mm. We thought this is real good fun because we were instrument rated, and so we thought we'll punch up above mm. the. They asked us if we could help, so we went, yeah, yeah, we'll punch up there and and uh, guide him in, sort of thing. We'd run down the ILS or something like that, and we're thinking later, hang on a sec, we're probably going to kill this poor bugger. He's mm. yeah. <laughs> he's still got to go through fifteen hundred foot of cloud, and that's, that's quite enough to get you out of control. Oh yeah, so thankfully you're... he got a, he got a cloud break and. Yeah, Didn't well, that's happened a few times around Oki. People getting lost and ending up on top of cloud, or mm. even starting to go into cloud and then popping out the bottom. And yeah, it all gets very untidy and very yeah. scary. But 
hopefully they'll train you well on instruments when the time comes for your commercial pilots. Yeah, well, I've done, I did my first instrument lesson the other day, but oh, I'll leave yeah. that for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> real first instrument flight. Yeah. We'll do that later. That's good. I guess what I've been most concerned about on Aero Sorties, we were out in a Huey and we're sort of back in the late 90s and we were trying to get from northeast Victoria, a little town called Corion, which some people may recognise as my hometown, and uh, we'd been down there to have scones with mum and dad and we were taking off to head back up to Queensland and we are going to go via Cooma. And weather was really bad. It was during winter, snow everywhere. And as we took off, you know, it started to rain and all that kind of thing. So we're following the valleys up and getting up, as you know, towards Mount Kosciuszko, looking for a little bit of a break to get through. I think it was over near Dead Horse Gap or whatever. And I started to feel more and more nervous because I wasn't the aircraft captain at the time. We had no GPS back then except those old military um, Trimble trim packs that were strapped down beside the seat. And you kind of had to lean over to your left, look right down at your left heel kind of thing. You could just see a long and lat, if you were lucky, on the screen. And so that thing wasn't even working properly. And then with all the white of the snow and the poor visibility, got promptly lost. And so we're kind of thinking, oh, well, we've got to keep going because the fuel's getting low, getting to that point where there'd be point of no return to get back to Aubrey for fuel. So again, it's that classic bad weather, no real plan B and just closing in. And as you know, in the snowy mountains, lots and lots of valleys and the loadmaster in the back was apparently later on told us he was logging where there were these little cattlemen's huts because he was in his head going, oh yeah, I can get back to there if this all turns to worms. And so he was starting to feel <laughs> nervous as well. But we kept our professional bedside manner on, you know, as you do, and probably should have just expressed it, hey, this is not real good, we're not feeling real well, and we probably would have turned around a lot earlier. In the end, we ended up in this blind valley and just barely turning, and as you know, you're getting higher there as well, high density altitude, so the machine's not performing as well. And so we turned and only just sort of flew out without, we didn't get real close to the ground, but it was enough to kind of, you know, make you nervous. And then we just decided, right, we're going to go to Aubrey. But based on our calculations, there was no way we were going to make it above our minimum. Mm. But as we turned around, this is what I mean by the grace of God, there's this like snow everywhere. We weren't really equipped. The army didn't really give you good kind of, you know, winter snow equipment. And this is another important thing, I guess, is, you know, dress for the ground, not for the air. Mm. Thankfully, we ended up with a, a bit of a tailwind and we're able to kind of fly out of the mountains across the human weir and land literally at 200 pounds, which was our min reserve of low fuel, like blink, blink, blink. But yeah, I had that real kind of tight feel in my chest the whole mm. time. And so that was when I was probably most concerned. But look, it's been uh, it's been a good discussion today and hopefully it's been good just reminiscing for us as well about mm. our first area command. Uh, but did you guys have any final points before we wrap it up? What's the one thing you tell Luke about his area command sorties in the future? What, I mean, what's the one thing? thing you'd really want him to know there be dragons <laughs> <laughs> and on that note we'll finish off we'll let, we'll let the listeners work out what that <laughs> yeah Cancel Sawatch is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely. The SAR in Sawatch is an acronym for search and rescue. When a pilot radios Cancel Sawatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the search and rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then the Cancel Sawatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training, experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel Sarwatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every flight, in the name of our podcast. Again, thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsarwatch.com where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Sarwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. 
hit your cancel sandwich bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.